If you asked Andrew and I who's inspired us the most, we'd both put our guest today, Sandor Katz, right up there in our top couple of names. We've read his books, underlining phrase after phrase, we've taken his advice, we've made his ferments, so many of his ferments. He's inspired, educated and handheld us both through our food fermentation journeys. Coming up is a fascinating and informative conversation that covers what Sandor grows and ferments, safety in fermentation, wild starters versus commercial yeast and how you can utilise wild yeast in your ferments, the war on bacteria, the small food revolution and much more. Patrons of the podcast can also find a deep dive into Sandor's knowledge on kefir grains and specifically on how best to get them to reproduce in the exclusive after show we recorded. Details of how to support the show and become a patron in the show notes. Welcome to the Ancestral Kitchen Podcast with Allison, a European town dweller in central Italy, and Andrea living on a newly created family farm in Northwest Washington State, USA. Pull up a chair at the table and join us as we talk about eating, cooking, and living with ancient ancestral food wisdom in a modern world kitchen. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Ancestral Kitchen Podcast. Allison, who do we have with us today? Wow. This, is this is really um, <laughs> the culmination of all of our episodes so far. We have Sandor Elix Katz, someone who we both have read. I think between us, we've read all of his books more than once, and we have mm-hmm. them all. Yeah. And we often, as patrons and podcast listeners will know, talk about him and we do have a drinking game where every time we mention his name we have to down a shot of sauerkraut juice or kombucha <laughs> so we are delighted to have you here Sandal. thank you ever so much for giving us your time I'm so I'm so happy to be here with you. I, I I sort of wish it was in an hour where we could play the drinking game but uh <laughs> well it's a fun game we get pretty sloshed on sauerkraut juice by the end yeah. of the episode. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I, in fact, I don't, I don't know if there's an episode where your name hasn't come up. Allison and I were thinking about that. Uh, for some reason, you you just cross so many barriers of, you know, all the different food contexts that we cover. And so you just keep popping up everywhere we go. Mm-hmm. So well, thank you for your massive effort on that. Okay, well, I'm, ha- I'm happy to be actually with you this time rather than just uh, being referred to. But yeah. <laughs> very happy to hear that I'm being referred to. <laughs> yeah. Well, if your ears are itching, you know why. <laughs> so we always ask the our guests, what did you last eat before we hopped on to record? Well, um, I just had breakfast about a half an hour ago, and it was a very kind of, you know, classic American breakfast. It was some uh, uh, fried potatoes with fried eggs and, of course, some kimchi. Mm. Nice. That's delicious. Nice. Love it. Is any of that um, veg that you grew or eggs from your chickens or... 
Um, no, they're, I mean, they're, 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 they're local eggs, but I don't have, I don't have chickens. My, my, my oh, life okay. is a little bit too crazy to have any <laughs> livestock because I travel a lot. Um, but yeah, I know, I know lots of local people who, who do. So it was, um, um, uh, uh, local eggs. Uh, the potatoes were from the supermarket. Uh, the garlic was from the garden. Mm. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, well, speaking of your garden, that is actually something that Allison and I talked about at length of yours, <laughs> which is that you your garden comes up a lot in your books, um, the later books especially, and <clears throat> we both love that. We both grow things. Not I do not grow to the extent that you do, but a lot of our listeners are really big gardeners, avid gardeners, even with... Um, farms and whatnot and um we would love to hear about your garden if if you would like to share about it you know how big is your garden yeah sure i i love i love to talk about my garden i, I wish i could take yeah. you all on a tour of my garden right now but, oh, so uh, we. <laughs> that seems a little bit outside of our technological capabilities mm-hmm. um well, I mean, this early November time, like where I live in Tennessee, is a beautiful, beautiful time in the garden. And, um, you know, we have, we have so many radishes. Um, you know, actually, I'm staring at a watermelon radish. Um, um, uh, I have um, these gorgeous purple daikons, black Spanish radishes, the more traditional white daikons. So uh, 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 lots of radishes and then greens, mustard greens, uh, kale, collards, um, you know, different kinds of Asian uh, cabbage varieties, but lots of greens and then also lettuce. And I'd say at, at, at this point, that's the major activity in the garden. Uh, we just had our first killing frost uh, maybe a week or a week and a half ago. And so, you know, we had a little trickle of late season tomatoes until then. We had uh, like sweet paprikas and uh, hot chili peppers. Um, uh, we still had some uh, uh, zucchini. Um, so, um, you know, the summer stuff is now past, and um, you know we're on to the fall and winter things. And how much of it do you ferment? Well, I mean, I certainly ferment some of it, um, but you know, like at at the residency program that I just hosted a couple of weeks ago. Um, uh, we took a drive to my friend's biodynamic farm and, and um, you know, filled up the, the back of a small pickup truck with um, uh, radishes and, and cabbages and chopped them up and filled up a 100-liter fermentation vessel with them and some other smaller vessels. Wow. So, um, you know, I, I, I sometimes do large batches that are coming mm-hmm. from other people's farms. You know, my... You know, I, I'll do small ferments with with the vegetables that I grow, but you know, honestly, the major, um, uh, you know, my my major intention is just to have fresh vegetables to eat every day. Mm-hmm. I remember reading. And I'm, I'm in not growing. I'm not growing on a scale where I have you know just huge um, excess beyond beyond our our daily eating uh, uh, needs. I remember reading in um, I think it was in Fermentation Journeys a recipe for um, purple sweet potato chicha 
and how that had come from your garden. And it felt like in that book and in other books, it's been your garden that has driven you to start fermenting and to carry on fermenting. Is that true? Is that how you started? Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, definitely like, you know, my first, uh, um, you know, sauerkraut that I made in 1993, that was the year that I moved from New York City down here to rural Tennessee. And, um, you know, that had everything to do with moting, motivating me to uh, start investigating fermentation and learning how to do it. Um, so it definitely grew out of the garden. Mm-hmm. Um and um, and certainly I, I incorporate things that I grow into my ferments, but, you know, my garden is at a relatively small scale, so I'm not really growing vast amounts of, of, of anything. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, well, one thing, okay, I mean, you know, Allison and I have had a bit of a correspondence about yeah. chestnuts. And, um, you know, outside of my house, there are three chestnut trees. And, you know, these three chestnut trees certainly produce more chestnuts than, than I need. But um, lately, we've been eating a, a first batch uh, uh, that I made of chestnut miso. And actually, just uh, last month, we made a second batch of chestnut miso. Um, but the chestnut miso is amazing. And so and every how part long of did, it is chestnut. How long did you leave that for? Was it a really long one or a short one? No, well, it was uh, uh, probably about eight months or something. Okay. Uh, Like I made it in the early spring. It fermented through the spring, uh, summer, and early autumn, and then we just harvested it a few weeks ago. Wonderful. So, you know, in in, uh, Japanese cuisine, you know, miso years would be summers. So as long as it went through a summer, you would call it one-year-old miso. Okay. Nice. And the shorter term ones are are more like, you know, two to six weeks, something like that. I haven't made miso from chestnuts yet, but it's something that I really want to do because I imagine that kind of real sweetness just. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. It's so it's so sweet and lovely. It's really delicious. And and the chestnut flavor really uh, 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 carries through. Mm, Lovely. I am. Probably most of our listeners associate you with veg because there's a lot of vegetable fermentation in your books. But um, I remember listening to, I think it was the You on the Taste podcast, and I heard you talking about lard, and you said, <laughs> everything's better with lard. And, <laughs> and when I heard you say that, I just it made me smile from ear to ear because we... We completely love lard on the podcast. It's such a great example of a traditional fat. And I make it here in my kitchen in Italy with pigs, you know, from my local farmer. I wanted you to talk a little bit about how lard, you know, making it, using it. How does that play into your kitchen and your diet? Well, okay. What I should what I should tell you is that um, uh, my partner and I helped a friend of ours raise two pigs two years ago. And, um, you know, after, uh, uh, you know, after the slaughter and, and, you know, thinking about how to divvy up the meat, you know, she announced that she wasn't interested in the fat at all. And so, you know, we ended up with, you know, many, many bags full of, um, um, you know, big pieces of uh, uh, fat. And 
So, um, yeah, you know, I think three different times we made these big batches of lard and, um, you know, rendered it down. I actually, I have an outdoor kitchen and rendering lard. I was very happy that I have an outdoor kitchen um, <laughs> so that the whole house didn't get too uh, uh, greasy. Um, but it's a beautiful process, just like, you know, like melt it, melting that fat and, um, you know, cooking it a little bit. And then you just have these little sort of the crispy bits, the parts mm -hmm. that were not fat that were bound up in the fat uh, and you strain them out and you pour that pour the rendered fat into jars and it's just so um uh you know it, it just it, it it cools off and it's just this sort of you know white solid um smooth um um stuff that smells so good and then when you heat it up and fry things in it they taste so good and um I don't know. I mean, lard is just an amazing uh, uh, fat to work with. And, um, you know, really for, I mean, now we're, we're out of our lard, you know, we don't have, we, we don't have, um, um, this fat to cook down. So, um, you know, life, life is a little bit less rich without, <laughs> without, uh, uh, all that lard. Yeah, I agree. I, I now would struggle without it. I think I like to use the crispy bits afterwards and I put them in sourdough I spread the lard on my bread and, and you're right, everything is better with lard and it, it's wonderful to hear you to talk about that, hear you talk about that. Um, but, you know, also, I mean, I'm, I'm also a big fan of butter. I, I, I love butter, um, <laughs> you know, and I, and I also work, it's, it's not that I never work with vegetable oils. I mean, certainly I work with olive oil a lot. Um, I recently have found a, a, a farm in Tennessee that's actually growing their own um, uh, rapeseed and pressing the oil f for it. So mm -hmm. I, I've actually been buying like, you know, beautiful local uh, uh, rapeseed oil, which is delicious. Um, mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty flexible with fats. I'm, 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 I'm a, I'm a flexitarian, you know, I, I like to, you know, eat what's available and what, what's abundant. And, you know, that was amazing, an amazing time for me having all of that, um, uh, uh, lard to eat. Um, mm. and I hope, uh, we'll raise some more pigs and have some more fat at some point, but, uh, that moment is not now. Mm. Andrea, did you have something to ask about the, the lard? No, I was just agreeing. We have a couple of pigs ourselves, and we've done a few the last few years. And the thing people always ask us is, well, what do you do with the lard? And I'm just like, what do you mean? What do we do with the lard? Like, what does one do with any fat? <laughs> Lots of delicious things. Yeah. Donuts, maybe. <laughs> I mean, I, I found the same thing. I mean, people just had no idea what, what to do with it. And I was just like, everything you would normally do with butter, you can do with lard. <laughs> right. Yeah, completely. Oh, well. If you've been around ancestral food for 10 minutes, you know liver is a superfood. You're looking at a food packed with vitamins A, K, a broad spectrum of B vitamins, CoQ10, bioavailable iron, plus many essential minerals and more. Liver is your first stop when seeking to gain energy and restore your health. Not only is it a delicacy and staple of traditional diets, it's the first thing most animal predators go for when hunting. Are you looking for a good way to work liver into your daily life, but getting it on the table just isn't happening yet or as much as you'd like? This is where liver capsules come in. Allison and I are both supplementing our ancestral diets with liver capsules from One Earth Health. 
We get all the incredible benefits of liver, even when we're on the road or preparing non-liver meals for our family. And the sourcing and preparation has all been handled for us. One Earth Health produces nutritious organ capsules from 100% grass-fed New Zealand-raised cattle. Support the pod by purchasing through our link, and you'll also get 5% off and free shipping as a bonus. Go to oneearthhealth.com slash ancestralkitchen or check the show notes. The other thing um, that I wanted to hear you talk about, Sandra, was wild starters. Um, I'm in my kitchen and my playing here. I'm really into wild starters. And the last couple of years, I've been on an exciting quest to try to recreate pre-industrial, pre-hopped ale from the UK. So ale without any hops. And I've done lots of research into it in that journey and everyone who I found who's doing that, trying to recreate pre-hopped ale, is using commercial yeast, which seems to me to entirely miss the point of the whole endeavour. <laughs> and I, I'm here kind of belligerently going, no, I'm going to make my own yeast. I'm going to use this as yeast. I'm going to use something else as yeast. I'm going to use a home yeast. And I remember reading in Fermentation Journeys, you talking about botanicals being used as starters in both beer and yogurt. And I really wanted you to talk about wild starters. And I've written something down here that was in one of your books where you said traditional fermentations never involve single pure strains. And so I wanted you just to talk about that a bit, but also to try to give listeners some guidance on how they can experiment with not using commercial yeasts. Sure. So, um, I mean, I think that the most important thing to recognize is that um, pure culture starters, such as the packets of yeast that are easily available to us, did not exist until the 20th century. So, you know, the technology, uh, you know, at the very end of the 19th century, the technology existed. Um, and, you know, and, and from the earliest 20th century, it began to be applied in this way to, you know, under a microscope in laboratory conditions, isolate some singular microorganism. It might be a yeast, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, used for making bread or beer or wine. It might be a, a, a bacteria. Curium, um, um, used to make yogurt. But, you know, at that time, for the first time, we had the technology to begin to isolate singular uh, uh, organisms and then propagate them in a laboratory. So this idea of pure culture starters began, you know, just over mm -hmm. 100 years ago. So what that means is in the, you know, presumed 10,000-year history of um, uh, uh, brewing alcohol, for the first 9,900 years, nobody ever had a pure culture yeast to use. So, um, you know, luckily, everything with enough sugar to ferment into alcohol has yeast on it already. So, um, you know, I mean, it's much easier in the realm of wine or in the realm of mead than it is in the realm of beer, mm. just because those ingredients are raw when you ferment them. So, you know, if you crush grapes, you don't have to get the yeast from anywhere. It's on the grapes. If you crush apples, you don't have to get the yeast from anywhere. It's on the apples. Um, 
you know, if you dilute raw honey to make mead, you don't have to get the yeast anywhere because there's yeast in the honey. Now, what's different about beer is that you cook the ingredients for beer. So even if, you know, the barley initially had yeast on it, in the cooking uh, of the brew, that yeast would would be destroyed. Um, so, I mean, in some of the indigenous uh, um, beer traditions that I've learned about, the strategy is you save a little bit of the malted grain to add in raw after the brewing as a source of the yeast. Or um, back slopping. That's when you save a little bit of a previous batch to be the starter for the next batch. And I have a friend who's a, got, a, got a small brewery in North Carolina, and he has fermentation tanks that he never completely empties. He always mm -hmm. leaves a couple of gallons of an earlier batch in to function as the starter for the next batch that he's going to, to, to make. So you can use old beer, you could use some uh, uh, raw grains. You could use other kinds of botanical ingredients, adding in some fruit, adding in some uh, uh, flowers, uh, adding in some, uh, you know, fresh herbs. You know, any of those things can, can function as, as a starter. Um, I've run across a few people who um, have made it a, 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 a project to try to, you know, isolate local yeast for use in, in brewing. And so, you know, I met this guy who, um, uh, oh God, what was the name of his, 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 his operation? It was, um, uh, oh, a, a yeast bioprospector, he called himself. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and he was, you know, he was basically like going to farms and gardens and he'd have a little substrate of uh, of wort basically the 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 brew mix ready to turn into beer and he'd just sort of from different plants get samples of yeast into that and then he'd brew small batches of beer and um you know identify the ones that he thought had the or, or strains that had the most favorable um characteristics for uh, uh for brewing so he just was like you know looking around on plants, taking uh, um, um, uh, samples of the microbes on the plants, and then, you know, using them to functionally brew beer. But of course, when you're working with wild yeast, you can get quite a bit of variability. So, you know, he was trying to identify ones that had the best flavor, the highest tolerance to alcohol, other kinds of characteristics that, um, 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 you know, he found to be uh, positive and, and beneficial. But the world is just full of yeast. I mean, honestly, I have not used a, a packet of yeast in this millennium. Um, you know, I've just been relying on, on wild yeast. And frankly, I'm not brewing a lot of beer. Um, mm. um, but there's, you know, there's just always, you know, things around us that are sources of yeast, most prominently any kind of botanical uh, um, component. I think... Um to give the listeners a kind of a confidence that, you know, if they're using anything that is raw, like you said, it's going to have yeasts on it and that can start the fermentation if there's sugar there as well. I like what you highlighted that, you know, um, your friend never cleans out his fermenting vessel. And there are so many examples of that throughout history. 
you know, with in England, people fermenting oats into pancakes and not cleaning out the wooden barrel each time they put a new batch in there because they just knew, people just knew that if you didn't do that, you would let those communities be in the barrels and then you could use that to help you, you know, next time. The other thing that I wanted to um, pull out of what you just said is the the variability. And in my experiments with beer and um, wild starters here, once I bought a packet of yeast and I bought it because I wanted to see what the beer would be like if I used a packet of yeast. I'd never, I'd never bought one before. And, you know, the beer was boring compared to the other, all the other batches that I've made. And some of them were better than others, but they, were, they all had real interest and nuance and depth and different flavours. And there was something to learn from each batch. Whereas when I used the commercial yeast, the beer was alcoholic and tasted like beer, but it was kind of flat and boring compared to the others. So I feel like that variability that you talk about is a, is a positive thing for us to learn as fermenters going forward, but also for our palates. Oh, I, I agree with you so strongly on that. I mean, you, you know, for, for instance, there's this sort of, um, you know, movement right now among the craft breweries and people are really getting into sour beer, which, which, mm. which I love. My perspective on sour beer was that, you know, until isolated yeasts were available, like all beer also had lactic acid bacteria because, you know, no source of yeast is not going to have lactic acid bacteria. Lactic acid bacteria are just ubiquitous. So, um, you know, it's, it's my perspective that until, you know, 20th century industrial brewing with isolated yeast, um, you know, all, all um, beers would have had a little bit of a sour edge because whatever the source of the yeast would also have some, some lactic bacteria. Um, uh, you know, I, I would say that, it, you know, it's not only in the realm of beer, but in every realm of fermentation, you could find that the most outstanding examples rely upon wild fermentation. I mean, the greatest cheeses in the world are raw milk cheeses that depend on the community of organisms that are indigenous to the milk rather than added cultures. The best wines in the world are made with spontaneous natural fermentation rather than specific yeasts added. The best salamis in the world are made with spontaneous fermentation rather than added cultures. The best breads of the world are made with natural leavening rather than added yeast. So, I mean, I just think in every realm of fermentation, the, the, the best examples you could find would be spontaneous, you know, what I would call wild fermentation based on the organisms that are, you know, present in the food that you are, are, are fermenting, you know, or to a limited degree, other, other added um, um, ingredients or your hands or the air or a vessel. Um, you know, but the reason why the pure culture starters have become so popular is just, you know, greater, greater predictability, greater consistency of, 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 of product. Um, 
Um, but still, if if you're you know if if you're willing to like put up with the vol- with, with the variability, you know you have the potential to just create the most extraordinary flavors. You know if you'll work with um, a, a wild fermentation and the organisms that are there. Yeah, yeah, and I think if listeners want practical guidance on that, I mean your book Wild Fermentation actually has recipes in it on many, many, many different ferments. And so that is a place to go to, to um, get some guidance on how, for example, to make a wine with fruit without using a packet of yeast. So that's, that's a great place to start. Andrea, do you want to jump in? Yes, I, I am loving this. This is awesome. It reminds me of the cider incident we had, Alison. (laughs) Um, Sandor, we... (laughs) We brewed some delicious cider just with apples that we pressed in in a just a kind of a glass carboy. And then later, years later, I thought, oh, I'm going to try it. Everybody says to do it with this champagne yeast. And it was my first exposure to using those little packets. It was disgusting. I fed it all to the chickens. It was so gross. It was like the blandest. As Allison says, it just was boring, yeah. super boring. Well, I'm I'm yeah, I'm that sorry that you had that experience, but um, but I'm I'm glad that it, <laughs> it reaffirmed <laughs> for you, um, uh, you know, the the value of wild fermentation. Absolutely. So um, another book you've written that um, was given to me by one of my uh, rebellious farmer friends <laughs> was "The Revolution Will Not Be Microwaved." And yeah, that book had me hot under the collar, (laughs) like jumping up and down. Yeah, exactly. Of course, the first chapter I read was the one on milk. I just went straight to that one. But such a great book. And um, as a small farmer, and then Allison and I constantly exposed to the world of small farms and sometimes weird legislation about farming and things like that. Every once in a while, I think we're in a bubble, Allison and I, because we're like, oh, everybody knows this and everybody does that. And then we step outside the bubble and we're like, oh no, (laughs) people really don't know. But um, how do you feel about where, I don't know, where where the revolution is? Um, Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of this Unmicrowavable revolution. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I mean that that book, "The Revolution Will Not Be Microwaved," which uh, came out in two thousand and six, and you know, it was really um, uh, a book about uh, grassroots movements to reclaim food. That you know, really, I was exposed to as a result of writing Wild Fermentation, and you know, while I was you know touring around trying to promote Wild Fermentation, and you know, appearing at a lot of places like you know farmers markets and food co-ops and things like that, I I just was meeting a lot of people doing inspirational projects, and I think you know then as now, you know these these grassroots projects to reclaim food are 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 very much on the margins. I mean. You know, they're not, you know, they're definitely not replacing, um, um, you know, factory farming and, um, 
you know, confinement, uh, animal operations and um, overpackaging of food and consolidation of retailing. I mean, you know, all of, all of those trends, you know, absolutely continue. Um, you know, however, you know, there are more and more alternatives to that. And, um, you know, in a way that that's, that's all we can do is is try to create robust alternatives to that, and um, you, you know honestly, for for most people who are sort of eating out of that system day to day, you know that that's just the easiest thing for them to access. And you know at some point something might change that makes that not so easy to, for people to access, um, you know, and then they'll be really happy that robust alternatives I exist. But, you know, like all those of us who are, who have a critique of that system can do is try to keep on creating better alternatives. Do you feel like, yeah. do you, one on, rebellious person at a time? <laughs> Go on, Andrew. No, I'm just agreeing. When it just takes one, one, um, I mean, it well, might be, it might be a rebellious person at a time, but also like, you know, various things expose the vulnerabilities of those systems. I think the pandemic did in That's a huge way too. when, yeah. you know, all, yeah. all this like uh, uh, disruption of supply chains and, um, uh, um, you know, products that people are used to being able to get whatever they want, not being available, um, you know, I mean, our, our, our system of centralized production and mass distribution, uh, you know, like it, like it works as long as it works. And, and, you know, one of the big problems with it is it's extremely vulnerable to disruption. And, it, you know, it could be any number of, 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 of disruptions. I mean, you know, we can imagine, you know, sort of war or political violence being a, like a factor that disrupts um, um, distribution chains. Um, um, you know, we could think about the, the price of fuel being a factor that influences the viability of this system, um, you know, all, all, all these things. But, you know, I, I mean, from my perspective, the only real food security is decentralized production. And for, you know, people, uh, you know, and I'm not saying everybody has to quit their job and becoming a farmer, but for, you know, every region of the world to try to expand its productive capacity of food, um, uh, you know, just seems like, um, you know, something that would create more food security. And I think that, you know, the only security we have in terms of food is, you know, really what's, what's produced regionally and locally, because everything else is so um, subject to disruption. How do you feel about our food world? Do you want to see change like we do? If so, head over to patreon.com forward slash ancestral kitchen podcast and help support us to get this work out as far and wide as we can. To say thank you, we've got a host of extra ancestral food material to share with you. You can connect with us more deeply via our Patreon exclusive podcasts, our after show chats, our dedicated forum and our ancestral food get togethers. And there's a library of downloads that will support you in your own kitchen. By joining, 
You'll be really helping us to continue making this podcast and to focus on having a bigger impact, reaching more people, making a greater difference. So we can move together towards the future food world we all want to see. We've got four levels of support to suit different pockets. Check out www.patreon.com forward slash ancestral kitchen podcast for all the details. So since you've written that book, you said that was 2006, you know, you, you saw those kind of networks. Do you feel like um, there are more of them? Like I, I remember listening to Joanna Macy, the environmentalist talk and her saying, you know, that as she got involved in all of these things, she noticed them or she saw more things happen and she felt more optimistic about the future because of it. And, you know, I wonder, because you've met so many people in so many different parts of the globe who are, you know, for either fermenting out of their back gardens or have started, you know, craft industries, making beer, doing such amazing projects. I wonder if that makes you feel um, optimistic about our future or not. Well, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, see, seeing, you know, like like alternative production, alternative distribution, um, you know, artisanal production. I, I mean, it, I mean, it's wonderful. It's 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 beautiful. It's inspiring, and um, you know, and and yes, it inspires hope for 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 me. I mean, it doesn't mean that those, you know, that, 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 you know, all of those things that I'm critiquing are not still happening, mm. um, but <laughs> they're not happening in a vacuum, you know, there, 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 there really are more and more people involved in, you know, alternative kinds of food production. And because a lot of that is so much smaller scale, it sometimes can be under the radar. You know, no one's yeah. no one's really tracking what you know what 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 any of us are producing in our gardens and what we're sharing with our neighbors and friends and you know what we're receiving from our other neighbors and friends who have gardens who or who are you know practicing different kinds of uh, um, food preservation. Um, but you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, informal, um, uh, uh, sharing and bartering that goes on. You, I think the first time I heard you give us like a talk, um, it was right around when the art of fermentation came out. Cause I remember I bought it around the same time. So it must've been 2012 or 13 and it was the mad symposium. Okay. I think that's what it was. And you were going hard on what you called the war on bacteria. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I know that um, a couple of years ago in the U.S., one of those major, you know, antibacterial chemicals was banned from hand soaps, but um, nobody brought up the fact that it's still included in several thousand other items. But um, I'm kind of curious also how you feel like that is going, the war on bacteria, because I feel like if anything, we're still getting more and more um, like hand sanitizer obsessed and um, mono, like, like the mono culture bacteria sort of flavor obsessed. Yeah. 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 Um, I just wonder if you could say something about that. Yeah, sure. Well, you've seen I, it you know, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in like, you know, the history of science and the history of how we, 
you know, perceive ourselves in the larger biological world. But, um, you know, b bacteria were first identified, really, by Louis Pasteur, you know, while he was investigating um, alcohol fermentation. And, um, you know, very, very, very quickly, he and others realized that, um, you know, certain, um, you know, common illnesses were uh, caused by bacteria. And so, you know, I, I would say that as soon as people learned that bacteria exist, we also began to learn that they could be dangerous. And so, you know, in the popular imagination, bacteria were equated with danger and disease and death. Um, and so, you know, I feel like that's the world that I was born into. Um, um, you know, I never heard a good word about bacteria. You know, the only times people ever talked about bacteria was worrying about bacteria and, um, um, you know, taking steps to eliminate them and all these, you know, chemical cleaning products that we have, uh, 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 et cetera. And I mean, to this day, when I, when I, you know, teach a workshop on something as simple as sauerkraut making, you know, generally half the people are, um, um, uh, shocked that I'm not doing something to sterilize the jar, that mm -hmm. I'm just, you know, washing it with soap and water and then putting my ingredients in there. Um, so, you know, the war on bacteria is just this sort of like approach to, to, to thinking about bacteria. Now, I mean, I would say that in the popular imagination, um, you, you know, our understanding of bacteria has really shifted over the last uh, 25 years. And, you know, I would really date it to the Human Microbiome Project and, um, mm -hmm. You know this 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 major scientific initiative that, um, uh, uh, you know, established the fact that you know a typical healthy adult is host to trillions of bacteria. So just like mind-bogglingly high numbers of bacteria in great biodiversity you know, that not only hang out in and on our bodies, but that it turns out we're extremely reliant upon for various aspects of our functionality, our ability to effectively digest food and, and extract nutrients from the food. What we call our immune systems is largely the work of bacteria. Um, you know, and we're just learning more and more how, you know, different um, you know, chemical regulatory systems of the body rely upon bacteria to regulate. So, for instance, you know, serotonin and other chemical compounds that determine, you know, how we think and how we feel, um, you know, are, are regulated by bacteria in the gut. So the bacteria, the, the bacterial communities that are part of us have, you know, just extraordinary implications for us. And I would say that, you know, one of the reasons why there has been, um, you know, su such a... Um, uh, uh, um, you know, great new interest in fermentation is this recognition that bacteria are not 
simply um, vectors for diseases that we can be vulnerable to, but that, you know, they're part of supporting a, um, um, uh, you know, a, a healthy, a healthy body and, and, um, and, and, and living well requires bacteria. And so, you know, because, you know, fermented foods and beverages, you know, are such great sources of broad bacterial communities, um, you know, people have really turned to these foods to, um, um, you know, try to strengthen and diversify the bacteria uh, uh, in the gut. So, I mean, I think the war on bacteria, you know, is real and, and, is ha and has been real, but I think that more and more people recognize that, it, that, that it's more nuanced. We can't just say bacteria are bad because we rely upon bacteria um, um, uh, uh, to live. And yet, you know, as, as you're saying, there, there's, there's no denying, especially sort of, you know, through the, the COVID context, people became, you know, sort of extremely, um, you know, more devoted to, you know, these um, um, uh, uh, chemical cleansing products. Mm -hmm. I am. Um, I'm glad you have such a wonderful platform in your book to explain so clearly and simply things like that. You know, I remember reading in one of your books just the simple kind of sensible advice about cleaning. You know, making sure your stuff's clean, but not using chemicals to sanitize. And I think it's in World Fermentation where you talk about um, death and you know how I think our society really struggles with the concept of death and you take time and beautifully um, explain how that's part of the ecosystem, just like bacteria is. And it feels like all your books, um, Andrew and I were talking last week when we were thinking about what questions to ask you and saying how we love the fact that the books of yours that do have pictures the pictures are so real and bring to life, you know, what you've learned and the things that you've seen around the world, um, rather than being, you know, pictures that are really very pretty, um, but not having so much substances. And it seems like your your books are are so down to earth and direct and sensible. And both of us love the, the practical feeling and the, um, the voice that you give to things like bacteria and death and how to make wine, everything together. It's, um, <laughs> it's wonderful. Thank you. Well, well, sweet. Thank you very much. Um, um, I, I, I really appreciate that. Um, you know, and and that's that's where I'm coming from is is just like learning how to do these things and trying to understand um, well what what really would be dangerous. You know, what are the parameters of safety? And you know, this is what I've what I've really tried to communicate above all else in 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 the books is just like you know what 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 are the parameters? And you know, the reality is. Fermentation is a strategy for safety in food. Yeah. You know, fermentation is not Russian roulette. <laughs> you know, fermentation is a, you know, a, like a like a very diverse set of practices that um, you know people have been using for um, a, a very long time. Um, you know, for, for I mean, it's not always to preserve food. I mean. Um, 
you know, if we're, you know, fermenting wheat to make bread, we're not preserving the wheat by doing that. I mean, it's also, you know, there's, there's always practical benefits. One of them is preservation, but, you know, digestibility, flavor, nutrient bioavailability, um, uh, you know, there's lots of different, um, um, you know, potential, um, um, you know, practical benefits to fermentation. But these things have all been tested by time. And, you know, it, and it's not that nothing ever goes wrong. It's not that nobody has ever gotten sick from eating a fermented food, but generally the fermentation makes the food safer than it is before. And if we think about the realm of vegetables, I mean, you know, we, 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 we hear in the media about, um, you know, outbreaks um, of, you know, salmonella or other, um, you know, food, food um, uh, uh, um, born illnesses um, stemming from, um, uh, raw vegetables. But, you know, just thinking about theoretically, if you took some raw vegetables that had been exposed to salmonella, if you, you know, shred them and salt them and get them submerged under their juices, well, the, the lactic acid bacteria are going to be there too. And they're actually going to be sort of able to dominate once you get the vegetables mm -hmm. submerged and they will acidify the environment. So after a few days, the cells of salmonella would perish from the high acidity. So, you know, fermentation processes in general have their own built-in uh, 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 safety. But, you know, like in our bodies, it's the bacteria that are making them safe and offer the protection from the, you know, rather limited uh, group of bacteria that have the potential to make us sick. Yeah, that's an amazing thought about salmonella. It just puts everything into perspective. It really does. Um, I think we've got a question for you that we want to um, keep over for the patrons because we're going to wrap up the main episode now but I do want to ask you before we finish here what's next for you I'm excited to hear what you're going to be working on next what books you're writing next well, I mean, I'm not currently writing. I'm, I'm I'm not currently writing a book. I'm definitely not one of these people who feels like I have to be in the middle of a book all the time. Um, you know, I've been very devoted to fermentation education, and um, you know, I'm continuing to do quite a bit of teaching. Um, I, I'm actually about to go uh, a, a week from now. I'm, I'll be traveling to Taiwan. Uh, and I'll be doing a little bit of teaching in Taiwan, but um, I'm going with a small crew uh, with the intention of learning about some distinctive Taiwanese fermentation traditions and um, documenting them in videos. And it's a follow-up to a series of videos I did, uh, well, made them in 2016. They were released in 2017. They're called People's Republic of Fermentation, and it was about fermentation in China. And it's um, uh, uh, eight videos, roughly 10 minutes each, uh, that are available for free on YouTube if you just search uh, People's Republic of Fermentation. And so we're making a follow-up uh, um, series uh, uh, focusing on, on, on Taiwan. Um, so that, that's in my immediate future. I have lots of travel coming up this winter and um, um, teaching in different places. Uh, I have a website, wildfermentation.com, and mm -hmm. if, uh, if anyone wants to check out uh, my workshops and where I'm teaching, uh, wildfermentation.com would be the place. And you can also find out about my books on there. Um, and also you can find links to all kinds of interesting fermentation-related resources out there on the World Wide Web. Wonderful.
Thank you ever so much, Sandor. We're gonna, um, we've got a question for you about kefir grains, which I think we're going to um, carry on with now. But for, for the main um, podcast that goes out, thank you ever so much for your time and your expertise. It's been wonderful to talk to you. It's, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to continue the conversation. Come find us on Instagram, Andrea's at Farm and Hearth and Allison's at Ancestral underscore Kitchen. Until next time, we both wish you much fun exploration and satisfaction in and out of the kitchen.